Well, good morning and a warm welcome to you all to our service together, especially if you're visiting here in Dundee. As a regular visitor, I know the warm welcome that I receive, and I hope you've received an equally warm welcome and can enjoy a cup of coffee or tea at the end. If you'll turn with me, you'll notice in the, the bulletin that our text is John chapter 8. John chapter 8 at verse 12. And if you open your Bibles to that page, we're going to move back slightly into John 7 to begin our reading. You'll see that the setting is that Jesus was attending the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, was one of the major Jewish feasts. So the city of Jerusalem, the population could have swelled to a million, maybe even two million. Tabernacle, Passover, Pentecost, Jews from far and wide would come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And the Feast of of Tabernacles was a twofold celebration. First of all, it was a harvest Thanksgiving. The, The feast would have taken place at the end of October. So the people would have gathered to say, thank you, God. Thank you for another harvest. Thank you for another year of bounty, of plenty. But it was more than just a celebration of harvest. It was a commemoration. Uh, The people would commemorate God's provision for their forefathers in the wilderness. You remember the wilderness journey, the period of time, the 40 years between the exodus from Egypt and the entry to the promised land. And while they were in the the wilderness, the children of Israel needed food, and God fed them. They needed water, and God gave them water. They needed guidance, and God guided them. And throughout the Feast of Tabernacles, two things happened each day. It was an eight-day feast, and each day the priest would take a pitcher, uh, a golden pitcher, and would go to the pool of Siloam, fill the pitcher with water, come back and pour the pitcher of water out over the altar. That reminded the people that in the midst of the desert, the wilderness, God provided water, water from the rock. So it was a visual reminder of God's goodness and of God's supernatural provision. Also, during that feast, the inside, the inside of the temple would have been lit with a huge candelabra so that morning and day and night you could see this glow from within the temple. And that reminded the people that during the wilderness journey, as they left Egypt, as they went to the promised land, God guided his people with a pillar of fire. So whether it was day or night, that the people could see where God was asking them to go. So if we turn to John chapter 7, and if we could read from verse 37, and then we'll read into chapter 8, that sets the scene for us. John 7 at 37, on the last and the greatest day of the feast, that's the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the Scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, 
but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted, has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Then each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and stared and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, At this, those who had heard uh, began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This time of year, when I was growing up, the most popular book or the most popular periodical in our house was the Sears and Roebuck Christmas Catalog. Now, this was a thick, glossy, color, full-color magazine that came out every year. And I tell you, my sister and I poured over its pages. The toys, the games, all the new stuff was there in Technicolor. And the month of November, the early parts of December, we were making our list, we were seeing what we wanted, and we were making it clear to our parents those toys and those games that were of a high priority. Sears and Roebuck was was kind of like um, Argus. You know, you can find anything in this catalog. You know, from the cradle to the grave, Sears would get you covered. But I tell you, come December 25th, we never didn't look at the book anymore. We didn't look at the Christmas catalog anymore once Christmas Day came. Why? Because we had the toys, we had the games, we had the presents, so the catalog gets put aside. What we have here in this passage is the real thing. Throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, there was a great sense of expectation. Expectation, what is going to happen, what God is going to do. But with these words in John chapter 8 and verse 12, we have realization. And the realization 
is so far greater, is so much better than the expectation. It's just like the catalog. The catalog where you can see the toys was great. You can anticipate what you might get. But compared to the toy itself, the game itself, the catalog doesn't compare. And when you look at the great promises of the Old Testament and the great realization in the New Testament, it's as if the half had not been told us, that it was far better than we could ever hope or imagine. So with you this morning, I'd like to look at these two themes of expectation, what was promised, and realization, what was delivered. And as we can appreciate these words that Jesus spoke, we realize the the great claim that he is making for himself and the great claim that he is making on us, the great connection that exists between us as people and Jesus as Savior, the light of the world, and that light is proclaimed, that light is, sh- is shining throughout the world, and he's asking you and I to come into that light. Two passages I'd like you to turn to, one in the old and one in the new. We were reading from Isaiah earlier, but if we could go, instead of Isaiah 59, let's go back to Isaiah 9, very early part of Isaiah's prophecy. And again, if you want to set the time scale... We're looking at about 600 years or so before the time of Jesus, six centuries before Jesus. So this is expectation. This isn't realization. Chapter 9, this is one of the great passages that is often read at this time of the year. If you go to a carol service, passages from Isaiah, Isaiah 9 or Isaiah 7, these, these are passages that would often be read. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And if you read down to verse 7 or verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the light will shine in the most unexpected of places. The nations, the heathen, the outsiders, they will see this great light, and they will realize this great provision found in a child who will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this image of light shining in darkness was there in the back of people's minds that somehow, some way, God was going to do a great thing in the future and that those who would otherwise be forever in darkness were going to come into his marvelous light. You fast forward to the New Testament, to the first chapter of John's Gospel, and we have the testimony here of two men called John, John the writer, John the evangelist, and John the Baptist, and they are both agreed that Jesus was this promised light. Listen to these words in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man 
who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So John the Evangelist, the writer here, and John the Baptist are agreed that there was light coming into the world, that the darkness of this world was going to be dispelled in quite a surprising and an unexpected way because we are told that light was going to come to those who would expect and welcome, you would think would welcome the light, would welcome the Savior, but we're told that he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who believed in him, to, those, to, those, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. So light was coming. And it's no longer a period of centuries like Isaiah was looking into the distant future. Now John the Evangelist and John the Baptist are saying, he has come. He is on his way. He is here. And he is ready to shine that light into these dark places. He's ready to shine his light into your dark heart. And those who you think are on the inside find themselves on the outside. And those who you expect to be on the outside strangely enough, find themselves now on the inside. So that sense of surprise or that sense of, uh, of wonder that Isaiah captures, that the Gentiles, the nations that were walking in darkness, they've seen a great light. And echoed here when John the Baptist or when John the Evangelist says to us that those who were his own people, they didn't receive him. But those who Whoever did receive him, whoever believed in his name, he gave right to become the children of God. So here we have this picture of expectation, of a growing sense of excitement, of a growing sense of wonder, of a, you know, again, as the date progresses closer and closer, it's December 20th, it's December 23rd, it's December 24th, it's Christmas Eve. The next day is the big day, and you just can't wait to see what is going to happen. And then John tells us, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The expectation is now realization. John can say, I don't read of him. It's not that I've heard him, but I've actually seen him with my eyes. I've touched him with my hands. I've listened to him with my ears. I know who he is, that he is God in the flesh, and he has come to dwell among us. And all of those great promises of the old, all of those great expectations that were given, are now fulfilled completely and fully, and even in a greater sense than could have ever been anticipated. So we turn now to the realization. We have the expectation, and now we have the realization. And when we look at verse 12 of John chapter 8... We have a challenge here, because if, you, if your Bible isn't like mine, the verses from 753 down to 811 are kind of set off, and they're set off with a footnote that says, the oldest manuscripts do not have this portion of the Bible in this particular place, and some don't have this portion in the gospel at all. So we have a challenge here, because we have to ask ourselves, does this passage fit 
And if it fits, does it fit here? Well, certainly as you read chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, it fits, doesn't it? The way Jesus speaks, the way Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, the way Jesus interacts with the woman, it fits. But whether it fits in this particular place, we have to leave almost as an open question. But I'd like you to consider both options here. Because if this passage weren't here, let's say this passage was somewhere else in John's Gospel, and we are meant to read from verse seven, chapter 7, verse 52, down to chapter 8, verse 12, then Jesus' words take place within the context of his discourse, of his, of his proclamation at the Feast of Tabernacles. And from that angle, Jesus is connecting with the ceremony. He's connecting with the commemoration. And let's consider what these words mean in that context. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We can take that statement as a pair with Jesus' words in verse 37 of chapter 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Two great symbols in the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest pouring out the water on the altar. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You remember the rock in the, in the wilderness? You remember water in the desert? That was me. What happened then? I will give you now. That water ran out. That time was limited, but the water, the supply that Jesus gives is unlimited, is eternal. And you remember the, the temple that was lit up with the great candelabra so that people could see it at night, reminding them of the great pillar of fire that guided the people through the wilderness? Then Jesus comes along and says, I am the light of the world. It's not the pillar of fire that guided your forefathers in the desert. It's not the candelabra that's in the middle of the temple. The great light is me. So you see, if you connect this with the ceremony, if you connect this with the Feast of Tabernacles, it fits. It fits with the ceremony. It fits with the celebration. It fits with what they were remembering. And Jesus says, all that you are remembering, all that you are recalling, is now finding its fullest complete fulfillment in him. That the, the water that satisfies thirst, he gives. The light that gives guidance, he provides. But let's say we look at this passage, and actually John chapter 8, 1 to 11, is where it should be. Then the angle of Jesus' words take on a moral aspect. Remember, Jesus is confronted with a woman, and she, she's caught red-handed. She's caught in the act she is guilty as charged, and he is asked to pronounce his judgment. They were using this as a question, as a trap, in order to have a basis for accusing him. What do you say, Jesus? Here's a guilty woman. The punishment of the law is stoning, is death. And sadly, we live in an age where we don't have to look at this as ancient history. There are countries in this world where a woman who is caught in adultery will face this execution will face this type of penalty. Whether or not she was guilty of adultery or whether or not she may even have been raped, this is a reality in many countries of the world. But Jesus doesn't address the sin of the woman. He addresses the sin of the accusers. You see, we are all guilty, whether we are guilty in an obvious way, like this woman, or whether we are guilty in a more subtle way. You see, Jesus has come to show to us that's what a spotlight does. When a spotlight shines its light, it shows everything. You see all the detail. 
And Jesus shines that moral light into this situation. So not only is the obvious sin of the woman seen, but the more subtle sin of the Pharisees becomes obvious. Jesus said, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Okay, you've identified this woman and you are singling her out as bad. Okay, what right do you have to judge? Are you pure? Are you righteous? Are you holy? Are you perfect? Because if you are perfect, then you throw the first stone. So you see, the Pharisees were not sinless. They were not without guilt or without shame, but their sin was more subtle. So this morning, it doesn't matter whether you are an obvious sinner, like the woman, or a more subtle sinner, like the Pharisees. Jesus has come to deal with that problem of sin, whether it's obvious on the outside or whether it's hidden deep in the heart. And Jesus, when everyone leaves, he straightens up and says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He said, no one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus has not come to condemn. He's come to save. He's not come to judge in the sense of saying to you and to me, you are lost and will stay lost. You are in darkness and you will stay in darkness. He has come to show us the problem so that we can see the solution. The woman understood the problem. And maybe gradually the Pharisees understood their own problem, but they left. She remained. So when, within that context, Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus then speaks to the people, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This spotlight shines, and people see themselves as they really are. There is no one righteous, not one. There is no one who pleases God. There is no one who satisfies God's standard. That's true this morning here. Not one of us can stand before God and say, I am right all the time. I am good all the time. I am pure all the time. I am holy all the time. I am righteous all the time. There is not one who can satisfy that standard. So if you think of this, these words within the moral context, Jesus has just confronted sin, obvious sin, subtle sin, and he is saying now to the people, he is that light of the world, and that when we ever follow him, that whoever follows him will never walk in darkness again, but will have that light that brings life. So you have that context. It could be the ceremonial context of the, of the Feast of Tabernacles. It could be the moral context of the accusation of the Pharisees, the good people to the bad person, the woman. But then let's look at the words themselves. What exactly is Jesus saying here? I am the light of the world. In these few words, Jesus is making a stupendous claim for himself. Even the sun cannot claim to be the light of the world because at any one time, half of the world is in darkness. He is claiming to be the source of light for the entire world, north and south and east and west, southern hemisphere and northern hemisphere, east, eastern hemisphere, western hemisphere. He is saying that he is the light of the world. And in these words, he is making an exclusive claim that is also universal. The exclusive claim, I am the light. There is no other option. There is no other choice. There is no other source of light than him. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I am the light of the world. So he is exclusive. There is no other choice. There is no other option. 
you know, sometimes in university, sometimes at school, you have different types of exams. You have essay exams, you give short answers or long answers, or you have multiple choice. You can choose A, or you can choose B, or you can choose C or D. Jesus doesn't give us a multiple choice here. Jesus says, this is the answer. It doesn't matter what the question is, but this is the answer. The answer is him. He is the source of life. He is the source of light. And he is the only light, but he is the light for the entire world. So he is exclusive, and he is universal. So he is proclaiming himself to all the people. You see, the Pharisees had a narrow view of God, an exclusive view of God, but they also felt that the God had an exclusive club of people for himself, and they were part of that club, and everyone else was outside of the club. This woman caught in adultery, she was outside. The religious leaders, they were inside. Jesus, by his association, the fact that he would eat and drink with sinners, that he would hang out, that he would, he would associate with those who were low, obviously he was on the outside. Good people associate with good people, righteous people with righteous people, These are not the kind of people that you want to be associated with, Jesus. So if you were a righteous man, you would know who these people are. You would know what their reputation is, and you would shun them. You would avoid them. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So this morning, there's good news for you, and there's good news for Dundee. There's good news for Scotland. And if we are ever tempted to be pessimistic, ever, ever tempted to despair, remind yourself that Jesus has a plan, not just for one group, not just for one class, not just for one type of people, but he has a plan for this entire world. He began his proclamation in Jerusalem, in Judea, but through us, his people, he says, I want you to take this message everywhere, and I want you to tell everyone, and I want you to go where people gather, whether in the cities, whether in the countryside, whether the educated or the illiterate, doesn't matter who they are, but I want you to tell them, tell them about Jesus, I want you to tell them about his character. I want you to tell him, tell them about his personality. Tell them about his work. Tell them about his victory. I am the light of the world. There is a statement here. We need to know about him. We have this great responsibility of teaching this world about Jesus. And Jesus defines himself, I am the light. Notice that he follows with an invitation. He makes a statement, then he follows with an invitation. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Whoever follows me. doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter where you're from. There are no prerequisites. You know, if you want to go to university, you have to do well at school. If you want to go on to study a master's or a PhD, you have to do well in university. If you want to become a doctor, you've got to take a certain level of courses and pass certain types of examinations. There's no requirements here for Jesus. No requirements to follow him. You don't have to have a certain level of understanding. You don't have to have a certain IQ. You don't have to come from a certain background. You don't have to have an ability to communicate or an ability with with words or an ability uh, uh, with writing. He says, whoever follows me. The gospel comes to the whoever. Whoever you are wherever you're from, whatever your background might be, whatever your life experience has been to date. Do you associate yourself (coughs) with the religious people who look down on others? Well, you're part of the whoever, 
Do you associate yourself with the woman caught in the act of adultery and you recognize yourself as an obvious sinner, an obvious failure? Well, you're part of the whoever. Or if you're just kind of part of the group, part of the crowd, Jesus tended to address people. We don't know what their backgrounds were. We don't know what their understanding was. We don't know whether they were looking forward to him or not. But he says to the whoever, whoever follows me, how often do we narrow the scope of Jesus? How often do we narrow in our minds, he's interested, she's not. They're open, they're closed. Here are likely followers of Jesus, and here are really, let's be honest, these people are just not bothered. They aren't interested. They don't care. I'll tell you an experience that happened just a few weeks ago. I was uh, working in the prison in Edinburgh, and a guy came up to me with a strong English accent. He was from Manchester. Big, you know, I'm pretty large, but this man made me look small. Skinhead, tattoos, gold teeth in the front. And he said, are you one of the vicars? I said, yeah, I'm one of the chaplains here. He said, how do I get baptized? I said, well, why do you want to be baptized? He said, and this is in front of the officers, in front of his mates. He said, well, because I'm a born-again Christian. I said, well, that's a, that's a pretty good reason. Uh, now, I look at him and I think, this is an unlikely candidate. This is an unlikely person. This is not somebody I would anticipate coming forward and saying, you know, actually, I would like to be baptized. I would like to follow Jesus. And yet, last Sunday morning, that's exactly what happened. At the morning service, 9 o'clock at prison, Wayne stepped forward, answered the same questions that would be asked of parents on behalf of their children or asked on behalf of adults coming forward for baptism. And he stated his faith in Jesus. He stated his commitment to Christ Jesus Savior, Jesus Lord, and his desire to follow Jesus. So isn't it a good thing that it's not up to us to determine who will follow Jesus? It's not up to us to determine who will understand or who will accept or who will respond. Jesus makes it quite simple for us, whoever. So you say to your friends, you say to your family, you say to the people that you you share a flat with, you say to the people you're on a course with, it doesn't matter who they are. The key is who Jesus is. If he is the light of the world, then he's the light for anyone and for everyone. So he makes an invitation, whoever follows me. And he couples that with a promise. And that's where we come in. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is who Jesus is. This is what he invites us to, to follow him. But then this is what will happen to us. You see, it's impossible with these words to stay in darkness and follow Jesus. You can do one or the other, but not both. You can follow Jesus, but if you follow him, you will now come into the light. You will come into his light. Or, if you choose, you can stay in darkness, but you can't remain in darkness and follow Jesus. The great gospel paragraph that we have in John chapter 3 in, your, in my Bible, I'm sure maybe in yours, it's set out as a paragraph, John 3.16, begins on this note. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Again, that word, whoever. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's the greatest sin. The greatest sin is not believing, not accepting, not trusting. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light, 
for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. For you who have responded to Jesus, are you walking in his light? Are you living this new life? Are you trusting him? Are you following him? And are you taking on his character, his priorities, his agenda? Are you living this new light, new life that is filled with goodness, filled with joy, filled with holiness, filled with righteousness, filled with honesty, filled with integrity? Because that's the path that he is walking. You see, you can't follow Jesus if he's going this way and you're going that way. It just doesn't make sense. If he's walking that walk, that path of righteousness, of holiness, of goodness, and you're still in darkness, it doesn't matter really what you say, but it's by your fruit, it's by your life that either you demonstrate the reality of Jesus in your life or you demonstrate the lack of reality of Jesus in your life. It's not about what you do. It's about what he has done. But the people of Jesus should be obvious. I'm preaching here what is the beginning of December, December the 4th. This is a dark time in Scotland. We have short days, long nights. When we have light, we appreciate it. When, when the sun rises, you know the sun has risen. It might seem that we live in a dark time. It might seem that there are few followers of Jesus. So those who are following should stand out. You should stand out in your course by your character. You should stand out within your family by how you live and by what you say. You should stand out in the community because if we are surrounded by darkness, even that spark of light, even that spark should be obviously seen. So there's an invitation and there's a promise. Have you accepted that invitation and are you living out that promise in your life? that Jesus is your light, that he is your life, that he is your guide, that he is your Lord, that, that he is your Savior, that where he goes, you go. What he does, you do. What he says no, you agree and you avoid, and what he says yes, you accept and you do. Jesus has come to bring light into a dark world, and he does that one person at a time. He shines light into a dark heart, and he changes your life from the inside out. The hymn writer, uh, Horatius Bonner, who ministered in Edinburgh, put it this way. He said, I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I looked to Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun. And in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. So today, if you are not yet following Jesus, there's an open invitation to you, whoever you are. And today, if you are following Jesus, there's this promise and challenge that our lives must become more and more like his, that our thoughts, our words, our actions, so that we now, as Jesus says, you are the light of the world. That's his call to his people, to shine his light into this dark world. He's the source of light, but we reflect that light wherever we go. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, for its truth. We pray that you would accompany the preaching of your word with your blessing, with your strength. Where we are weak, Lord, give us your encouragement. Where we are wandering, give us your direction. And Lord, we pray that any hearts today that are not open to Jesus, that by your supernatural power, you would open them to the gospel, that they would see with their eyes 
believe in their hearts and trust Jesus for themselves. Hear us, O Lord, we pray, and accompany with your blessing all that is done and said in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.